Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The fear bullocks gathered their men together then, and they came with their eleven battalions and took their stand at the eastern end of the plain of Mina. Nurda, king of the men of Jah, sent his poets to make the same offer he had made before, to be content with the half of the country if it was given up to him. King Yokig bade the poets to ask an answer of his chief men that were gathered there, and when they heard the offer they would not consent. So the messengers asked them when would they begin the battle. We must have a delay, they said, for we want time to put our spears and our armour in order, and to brighten our helmets and to sharpen our swords, and to have spears made like the ones you have. And as to yourselves, they said, you will be wanting to have spears like our Krashoks made for you. So they agreed then to make a delay of a quarter of a year for preparation. It was on a midsummer day they began to battle. Three times nine hurlers of the Tour de Danon went out against three times nine hurlers of the fear bullocks, and they were beaten, and every one of them was killed. And the King Yukig sent a messenger to ask, would they have the battle every day or every second day? And it is what Nuada answered that they would have it every day, but there should be just the same number of men fighting on each side. That's right, 27 dead. And that's just the first recorded match in the sport of hurling. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. This episode didn't turn out as I planned it. Originally, this was supposed to focus on some of the great two-sport or multi-sport stars of Ireland. It's going to tell the stories of goat-level players in Ireland's national sports of hurling and Gaelic football, like Jack Lynch, who helped Cork to five hurling championships in six years in the 40s. And in the off year, helped Cork to the Gaelic football title. Or of Teddy McCarthy, the two-sport star who in 1990 became the first starter on hurling and Gaelic football national champions in the same year, and who remains the sole player with that distinction. Or perhaps we could talk Cork's Hurling three-peat of 1976-78, a team which included four players from the 1973 football championship. There's also Lindsay Peet, who played for Team Ireland in rugby and basketball and played for six years on Dublin's ladies' Gaelic football team, winning one championship. She's still playing rugby union ball on the club, provincial, and national team levels at the age of 40. I still might yet write her up. However, in doing the research of the sports to seek out the goats, a glaring truth about hurling rapidly became obvious. 
1973 RTA radio documentary, The Hurling Men Explained. To give a full view of hurling, even from the ditch, you'd need not 50 minutes, but 50,000. When an amateur starts dabbling in hurling history, he's liable to get his fingers burned. Well, I'm not sure I can do 50,000 minutes on hurling and keep the audience interested, but this amateur sports historian can state with extreme confidence that representing the history of hurling in any fashion without acknowledging at every turn the history of the Irish people themselves would be impossible. The story of the battle at Magnia tells of events taking place in 1072 BCE, some 600 years before the Celts even made their way into Ireland. Clearly, I needed context to the story of Goatdom. Lots of context. Of course, before I started scripting this episode, I did my due diligence reading resources and checking out YouTube clips of recent All-Ireland Championship matches. And despite a passing resemblance to a combination of field hockey and lacrosse, I have to admit I was a bit baffled on the finer points of the game. Enter Emmett Ryan. Emmett is a career journalist currently writing for the Business Post newspaper in Dublin. He's also the editor and manager of the international basketball-centric website BallInEurope.com, which was once run by some guy named Oz Davis or something. Emmett may cover basketball, but like myself, is an ardent fan of sports of all sorts. And so he agreed to join Truly the Goats for what turned out to be one long interview and two episodes. I decided to start with the basics. How central are sports and especially the gaelic sports to irish culture in the 21st century oh, oh they're still huge like sport as a whole i think is it was definitely much grander in terms of irish culture than just our own sports but you know like sort of the 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 championship season what we basically would call the playoffs so to speak although it's a little bit more complex than that that sort of you know captures the general attitude of the of the of the audience around here through the summer months into like sort of september when the finals are on and yeah, it's like, so that'd be the key time, but it's like, you know, rooted a lot into communities as well. So the smaller clubs, which sort of would feed into the larger county teams, they're like key parts of most rural communities and pretty important in urban communities in very different ways, oddly, uh, now than they would have been historically. But like that being said, like while as individual sports are both huge, like the biggest participation sport remains soccer. That's obviously a lot of sort of the British slash European influence. And like, you know, the, the biggest draw, even though they're terrible at the moment, is still the national soccer team. And I mean, they've been, mm-hmm. they've been bad for a while, Oz. Uh, I don't think anyone who, uh, you know, is like sort of is recalling sort of, you know, great Irish teams of the last couple of years. You might recall teams if you're listening from like about 20 years ago, but not so yeah. much of recent years. And uh, that's not an accident. And obviously rugby is also huge here. Again, that'd be a lot of the UK influence. And we've generally been better at that. Although that, it does help that far fewer countries play it. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose the curious thing is for domestic sports, for because they are really, while well, there are GA clubs all over the world, and you know, you are we are seeing more people who aren't Irish uh, play it, play it overseas. Obviously, plenty of people who aren't Irish play it in Ireland. Uh, you know, when they come here, but um, sort of it's still so overwhelmingly dominated by sort of players within Ireland, like comfortably the majority, and then some of, of players worldwide live within the island of Ireland. And so, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's kind of unusual sort of, you know, that they remain sort of so high in terms of the national consciousness compared to when you think of other countries that are not of the scale of, say, the U.S. Obviously, people go, well, the NFL's pretty much its biggest place is the U.S. Yeah, but the U.S. is like whatever. It's like, oh, it's like 300, 400 million people. It's a bit different to like, you know, four or five million people, which is what we are like, you know, if you include the whole island, it's closer to seven or eight uh, because obviously the games are played across in both Northern Ireland and Republic. But 
you know, it's like sort of it's kind of rare that you have sports hold that level of prestige when they don't really have much international cachet as such. But let me ask you this, just to put it simply, Emmett, what the hell is hurling? Can you explain it to me simply? Yeah, well, I'll start off by seeing a line from Jason Statham in a movie he did called Blitz. This lads, it's a hurling. Usually in the oh. Irish game of hurling, cross between hockey and murder. A bit of a glib answer to be sure, but then again, consider how the narrative of hurling history begins. Namely, with the story of the ill-fated 27-man team that you've already heard about. Here's another example from a 1910 compendium of bardic Irish myths about a guy by the anglicized name of Finn McCool. One day, while still a boy, he was roaming through the woods when he came to the mansion of a great lord, where many boys, sons of the chief men of Ireland, were being trained in manly arts and exercises. He found him playing at hurling, and they invited him to join them. He did so, but decided he was on one too easily, so they divided again, and yet again, giving fewer and fewer to Demna's side, till at last he alone drove the ball to the goal through them all, flashing among them as a salmon among a shoal of minnows. And then their anger and jealousy rose and grew bitter against a stranger, and instead of honouring him, as gallant lads of gentle blood should have done, they fell upon him with their hurlies and sought to kill him. But Demna felled seven of them to the ground and put the rest to flight, and then went his way home. When the boys told what had happened, the chief asked them who it was that had defeated and routed them single-handed. They said, It was a tall, shapely lad, and very fair, using the Gaelic word for fine, Finn. So the name of Finn, the fair one, clung to him henceforth, and by that name he is known to this day. Basically, you got a, a field, it's about, uh, I'm doing a quick math here, sorry. It's about 150 yards long, about 140 meters long uh, in total. So it's about one and a half times the width of a football field is the best way to describe the width. And so it's, it's a really big field. Uh, you got 15 players in each team uh, and you're basically got this really small ball about, you know, again, I'm trying to even think of sort of uh, the size. It'd be sort of, if you rounded out a hockey puck, I suppose. But the difference is, you know, you get to handle this ball, like so, and you hit it with a stick, which is a, just over three feet long, like three and a half feet, and uh, you whack it really hard, and uh, you try and either score a point, which is over a crossbar, or a goal, which is into a goal, which is very similar to a soccer net, uh, only slightly smaller, and uh, in terms of the net size, but substantially bigger than, say, an ice hockey net. And uh, there is basically no padding. Helmets have become mandatory in recent years, but that was because of eye injuries, which were oddly not to do with the pace of play, but more sort of inadvertent movement, if that makes sense, because you're holding big sticks and like there's a ball going about <laughs> and guys might get high, high, high injuries. It's very, very fast. And it's a nightmare to watch on television at times because uh, the speed of the play, because you're talking about guys are hitting this ball at like 60 miles an hour on an enormous pitch. Uh, that keeping up with it, it's much harder to watch on TV than it is in person, which is I suppose one of the things that's hurt its export p potential, but there's a lot more to it than that. It's a physical sport is what I will say as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of bashing about, like, you know, you hit the ball on the ground or with your hands. And, uh, you know, so long as, you know, you're not deliberately going for the guy's leg, if the guy happens to get hurt in the process of you swinging, it's considered fair play. Like most of the worst injuries in hurling are not attempts at fouls. Like it's like I remember playing, explaining to people, you know, who, and I suppose it's people now, it's like, it's a sport which is violent by nature, as in the, there is dirtiness, there are people who try to be dirty in it, but honestly, if you really want to hurt somebody, don't try, you're just going to do it anyway. 
At 3,200 or so years old and dating from the Bronze Age, should we be surprised that the sport of hurling is violent by nature? About as old as hurling are the Mesoamerican ball game, sports known today for their likely regular gruesome injuries during gameplay, not to mention ritual sacrifice thereafter. And about a thousand years after the origin of hurling came ancient Rome's gladiator games, at which the violence was pretty much the point of the entire spectacle. Hurling came to Ireland in about 500 BCE with the Celts, who'd come from conquests stretching from modern-day Germany to modern-day Portugal. Like the Celts themselves, hurling settled in Ireland, leaving behind only traces on the European mainland. In the case of hurling, enough to eventually spawn the sport of field hockey. By 250 BC, the Celtic culture was dominant in Ireland, establishing much of the cultural framework that foreigners today see as emblematically Irish. The Celts also introduced in Ireland what are now known as the Brehon Laws. The Brehon Laws represent the oldest codified legal system in all of Europe, and as early as the 5th century AD, the Brehon Laws, which had been passed on through oral tradition, were now written in text. Naturally, since the laws are a product of Ireland, among the first such rules noted are a pair related to hurling. One, on compensation for injuries suffered in a match, and a second making illegal the use of a hurley as a weapon. This was well before the movie Blitz, of course. Oh, Blitz. Give us your wallet, you This lads, it's a hurling. Throughout the next 1400 years, hurling, or rather variations on hurling, spread throughout the lands ruled over by the Celts, with rules differing from town to town. The rules might call for the ball to be hurled through an upright standing loop or set into a hole in the ground. The field of play might be a lawn of 200 meters square or the distance between one town and another. A team might have a dozen players or hundreds. All in all, early forms of hurling were a lot like the various pastimes, which were the precursors to European football. By the mid-12th century, hurling was straight-up, full-on cultural feature of Ireland. Enough, though, that new invaders saw the sport as a threat to a would-be dominant force. Perhaps the first time any sport had been seen as such anywhere. The first of the Anglo-Norman invaders, Coombe colonizers, arrived on Ireland's shores in May 1169. Mercenaries, supported by King Henry II and ostensibly coming to the aid of deposed King of Leinster, Dermot McMurrah, enjoyed impressive military success. Within two years, and assisted by more militia sent from England, the Anglo-Normans had taken control of the major cities of Dublin and Waterford. In late 1171, with Dermot McMurray dead, Henry, at a larger organized army, landed to take control of both Anglo-Norman and Irish elements. Ironically, Henry won support from the Vatican for his invasion under the proviso that the Christian Church of Ireland would be brought back under the auspices of Pope Alexander III and the Holy See. The forces seesawed with various gains and setbacks, but by 1177, Henry felt confident enough in his holdings to proclaim his son, who had later ascended the throne as King John, he who signed the Magna Carta, king of all the Irish territories. Thus began the bloody antagonism between the Irish and their colonizers, which would last throughout the rest of the second millennium. 
the Emerald Isle soon became home to a steady stream of English settlers. But a funny thing happened on the supposed road to assimilation. The emigres were picking up Irish culture rather than the other way around. Hurling was one cultural feature the English found particularly entrancing and was, along with practicing the wrong sort of Christianity, rapidly outlawed by King Henry and the Plantagenets. This law was roundly ignored, however, and, if anything, the English were taking up the game ever more enthusiastically. Nearly 200 years later, Edward III, the penultimate British monarch of the House of Plantagenet, was in power. The noble classes were increasingly distressed by the weakening of the Norman lords and the cultural counter-assimilation of their subjects by the Gaelic Irish. In 1367, the ruling Duke of Clarence attempted to restore British common law in Ireland with the Statutes of Kilkenny, 36 measures explicitly designed to replace the Brehon laws and introduce what we might today call an apartheid state in Ireland. Statute number two forbade marriages between English and Irish. Statute number four required Normans to speak English, wear English-style clothing, shave their beards, and even ride horses in the English fashion. Then there was statute number six, which translated from the Norman English reads in part, whereas a land which is at war requires that every person do render himself able to defend himself, it is ordained and established that the commons of said land of Ireland who are in the different marches at war, do not henceforth use the plays which men call whorlings, with great sticks and a ball upon the ground, from which great evils and names have arisen through the weakening of the defense of said land, but that they do apply and accustom themselves to use and draw bows, and throw lances, and other gentlemanlike games, whereby the Irish enemies may be the better checked by the liege people and commons of these parts. And if any do or practice the contrary, they shall be taken and imprisoned and fined at the will of our Lord the King. That's right. Hurling was made illegal for reasons of national security. The quote-unquote gentlemanly sports were most likely prescribed because A, these were sports included in the much-esteemed ancient Olympic Games of the Greeks, and B, England's own national sport of cricket was still two centuries away from its birth. Incidentally, many a hurling fan has noted the irony of the codification of these statutes in Kilkenny, long a stronghold hurling. Needless to say, the statutes of Kilkenny were generally ineffective, and essentially totally useless with regard to curbing hurling activity. In 1527, some 160 years after the Statutes of Kilkenny, the Statutes of Galway were enacted. These not only banned hurling, but also illegalized handball while proposing a British alternative. At no time shall he use nor occupy the whirlings of the little ball with hooky sticks or staves, nor use no handball to play without the walls, but only the great football. Unfortunately for the royals, the land of Ireland remained a mostly football-free state for centuries more, and hurling continued growing. The website irisharchaeology.ie notes that by 1587, quote, in the south of Ireland, Hurling was so prevalent that the Lord Chancellor William Gerard was forced to reprimand the English settlers of the Munster Plantation for playing the game. The historian considering Ireland and or sport in the 17th century makes note of the Protestant ascendancy in the former and the birth of organized cricket in the latter. 
Now, I'm not about to get into the weeds of the socio-political machinations and religious underpinnings of Ireland in the 1600s, but most 21st century citizens, and maybe particularly those living in the USA, should find a highly truncated version comprehensible and even relatable. Here goes. A tiny percentage of the population owned all the land, and therefore essentially all the wealth, and began consolidating that political power as well. In terms of international sports history, the importance of the rise of organized cricket in the 17th century cannot be underestimated. The British, great codifiers and organizers of world sport, cut their teeth on the complicated game, which later spread throughout the world. Meanwhile, the tightening grip of the upper classes and Protestant clergy on Ireland's mostly Catholic peasants, combined with their loyalty to the British monarchy, at least for now, meant that the earlier colonialist style of cultural suppression was no longer felt quite as outwardly necessary. And the increasing popularity of cricket and other ball games in Britain meant that hurling was becoming seen by the elites as more of a pleasurable novelty spectacle than sinful slacking by the masses. In the 1650s, two hurling matches were held in London, including one attended by Oliver Cromwell. Now, keep in mind that Cromwell was a general known in Ireland as a mass murderer for his role commanding troops during the Three Kingdoms War, as the man credited with later completing the English conquest of Ireland in 1653. A biography of Cromwell by one John Morley, written in 1900, self-reflectively noted that, quote, of all these doings in Cromwell's Irish chapter, each of us may say what he will, yet to everyone it will at least be intelligible how his name came to be hated in the tenacious heart of Ireland. Point? Had Cromwell been putting down Irish rebellions 25 years earlier, he wouldn't have dreamed of thinking of hurling as anything but barbaric. But just as it seemed Irish cultural identity was more endangered than ever before, hurling was about to enter its golden age. And wait till you hear some good old 18th century Irish sports writing. We'll get right back to the podcast in just a minute. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably in sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more of dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl one, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now, get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. If you go to Britain, you'll find, at the very least, I think, 10 different titles for what we would nowadays call hockey. There were at least 10 different titles for it, and we had a number of titles for it in this country as well, of course, for hurling. One of these was Kamenacht, the other was Imoint, and Boyle, and so on. But um, 
I think myself that the landlord class drew these together and certainly for our major games did in fact give us one fixed type of game. Now when you say the word landlord class then you're talking mostly about the 18th century. I am you? talking virtually entirely about the 18th century. Yes. Um, as early as 1708 the first account that I know of of a hurling match appears in a Dublin newspaper which of course would be a very tiny newspaper by our standards called the Dublin Flying Post. This was a match played in the Curragh of Kildare between the men north of the Liffey and south of the Liffey and I think offhand the number of men playing was either 27 men aside or 30 men aside. And throughout the century, the press continues to reflect this golden age of hurling. That's Brother O'Connor of the Irish Christian Brothers, credited with producing one of the earliest scholarly works on the pre-20th century history of hurling, speaking in the 1973 RTA documentary. O'Connor's view of hurling in the 1800s is now fairly well standard among historians, again, making hurling an outlier among European sports. After all, which Euro-American sports still played today can boast a golden age taking place before the rush to codify rules, before the concept of sports clubs, before sports reportage was a regular feature of the news. Oddly, as individual freedoms and property ownership continued to fade for most of the population, a top-heavy economic situation in Ireland allowed the wealthy to foster players of hurling, essentially forming hurling teams. But these teams weren't exactly playing a regular schedule. Patron-sponsored games were less akin to a modern association with home-and-away dates spread out over a few months of the year, and more like the challenge of one Aztec chieftain to another for a ball game. For the populace, the more or less randomly scheduled matches resembled the bread-and-circus-style entertainment of Roman rulers. Check out this reportage from the Freeman's Journal of August 1917-77, a fairly representative account of a typical hurling match in those days. To such a height is luxury and stipation risen as to enable on Sunday last two waiters from a noted coffeehouse in the city to hold a match of hurling for five guineas a side, the losing party with the true sporting composure of mind, unconcerned made for Dublin, whilst the victor, elate with his success, took his chosen band, as he drummed it, to punish his winnings, vehemently stating he would never quit the spud while a penny remained. Even our apprentice youth are unwilling to be outdone by these bucks of prodigality that will not stop at any means to be able to cope with them. And no, I have no idea what to quit the spud is, but it's clearly an expression that begs for resurrection. Note a few details of the reportage, like, say, the lack of score or even the name of the victor elated with success. Not that these early short narratives about hurling always forsook the individual. For example, here are some lyrics to a ballad about hurling from 1680s Wexford, which emits something of a Casey at the Bat vibe. Yesterday we had a goal just in our hand. Their men were all quaking, twas themselves could not stand. If a muddler be buried, twould be my Tommy, who by all the bad luck was well placed to drive in. Many a fine puck by Tommy was made. The Colbert said it would well be our fate if we had any luck that our name would be sung from the hill of Tara here right up to Cardfoot. In the 1750s, Two exhibitions of hurling were put on by expatriate students living in Paris. King Louis XV demanded the second match as he'd missed out on the first. As J.T. Campion wrote for the newspaper The Celt in October 1757, 
On application to the Irish College in Paris, the young Hibernians there located were but too ready to gratify the desires of the royal monarch. Accordingly, the ground was selected outside the barriers and began enclosed with white mist and pavilions along the whole line. Thither came the whole city of Paris, the king and his court, nobility, gentry, and artisans, all to see this specimen of the peasant games of Ireland. The young men of Leinster and Munster were selected for the day's sport, the former dressed in green silk jackets, the latter in white. In 1770, a blacksmith with the family name of O'Kavanaugh wrote a piece entitled The Hurling at Mohury, recounting a match between Duffrey Hall and County Carlo teams. Squire Colclough, our patriot, threw up the ball, and Dick Doyle from Marshallstown gave the first fall. Our men being trained in the hurling school, like a shot from a cannon, they sent the ball cool. In 1779, Robert Devereux wrote his card Menon, a poem devoted solely to the playing of a hurling match in Wexford, which climaxes in the scoring of a winning goal. I must explain to you the manly sport of all these youths who to yon green resort, where different districts off for fame have hurled without a wish or thought of the great world. So here the lads and tree bands divide, their disciplines the same on either side. One score and one's the number most complete. Seven guard the goal while seven brave the heat of the mad play. The other seven drive at the adverse goal and keep the game alive. So the two hurlers with their nymphs in view, their utmost efforts at each glance renew. Fresh forces now arrive from each side. Mind how they struggle, see how they stride. Till from the crowd one slyly take the ball and tips it often as he scours the plain while his antagonist pursues in vain. Hats, wigs, shoes, stockings quickly fly in the air. The victors to the beer barrel repair, where huntsmen like the games played o'er again, and bagpipes drone while they get drunk amen. A notice by Thomas Mullen in the Royal Gazette of May 18th noted, Next Monday will be played a match at that ancient and manly game by a number of gentlemen at the back of the Jews' burying place. Such as are desirous of encouraging the diversion by becoming players, are requested to meet at the Royal Punch House near the Tea Water Pump at 11 o'clock in the forenoon to settle matters respecting the match, which is to begin at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The subscriber hath at considerable expense procured hurls, balls, etc. for the occasion, and expects the gentlemen who are pleased to encourage him thereto will meet as appointed. June 2020 issue of History Ireland. A temporary selection comprising players from the parish, along with others from Courtenahoe and Glengool, defeated Kilkenny. The victors on that occasion, aided by their women folk, won the ensuing fight and were known thenceforth as the Temporary Stone Throwers. Into the 19th century, the stories of an obsession with hurling lived on. As Humphrey O'Sullivan noted of an 1827 match in his Diary of an Irish Countryman, It was a good game. The sticks were being brandished like swords. Hurling is a warlike game. The west side won the first match, and the east the second. You could hear the sticks striking the ball from one end of the green to the other. O'Sullivan and other hurling enthusiasts might not have known so at the time, but the golden age of hurling, like Ireland itself, had already irrevocably changed forever. For centuries, the Normans had lived in Ireland, long enough for them to think of themselves first as Anglo-Normans, then English, then Irish. 
the landowners who'd come to power during the Protestant descendancy, who considered themselves not at all Irish, tended to simply play the absentee landlord and live in England. Between a swath of Anglo-Irish gentry and the increasingly poor masses, a nationalist movement which sought independence from the crown was formed. The so-called expedition to Ireland by French forces in 1796 was an attempt to assist Irish Republicans in acts against the English, and a bloody nationwide rebellion happened in 1798. To cement the rather tenuous situation once and for all, or so they thought, the parliaments of Britain and Ireland passed the Acts of Union, which created the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. The game we have is very, very racy, very, very national, I think it is. And this was seen even before the Act of Union. It was already felt in the Dublin Conservative Press. And they stated it expressly that this was an intensely national game. And they referred always to cricket as the English game. Because although hockey is perfectly genuine, an English game and so on, it never really had any, really had any status until the end of the last century. Hurling at that time was only beginning to regain a portion of the exaltation and the glory that was its, uh, its own one time, you know. In the middle of the 18th century, hurling was a very, very great game. Why did it decline? It declined because of 1798 and 1801, the Act of Union, the divorce between the people who made it and the tenantry who played it. That was the end of hurling to all intents and purposes, and it had a struggling existence. All the forces of narrow-minded Sabbatarianism were now able to attack hurling freely and easily, and they did just that. And as well as that, of course, the greatest enemy that hurling has ever had, and still has, is rough play. And when the landlord class with the leaden whips left the sidelines of our hurling fields, the people, the peasantry, went wild, driven wild by ignorance and drink. And, of course, what Sean O'Duda called prostichus agus baltichus, in other words, narrow-minded parochialism. You see, and parish loyalty, the loyalty of the little village. It's a virtue, but it was a virtue that went wild. With Ireland subsumed politically into the United Kingdom, the country was now subject to an explicit importation of culture in the colonialist fashion. This was particularly evident in sports. With the bearing class stripped of power and thus resources to sponsor teams and host matches, the powers that be once again offered alternatives to Irish sports, especially hurling. And unlike hundreds of years ago, when archery and javelin throwing could be suggested, there were now English sports, like cricket, field hockey, and of course, football. The Great Famine of 1846 to 1849 was nearly the terminal blow for hurling. As the Gaelic Athletic Association official website puts it, quote, hurling had declined dramatically and was in danger of dying out completely, but for a number of strongholds, unquote. But hurling, the last of the extant ancient Western ball games, refused to die. Beginning in the late 1850s, derivatives of hurling were in vogue among the upper classes. By the 1870s, by the 1870s, hurley clubs were being formed in Dublin in the recent tradition of British SCs and FCs. And in 1877, the opening of an exam prep school in Ireland's biggest city was about to trigger hurling's full-scale resurrection and modernization. As a member of the wealthier classes in Ireland, Michael Cusack was able to participate in organized contests of cricket, track and field, football, and that sport recently booming in popularity, rugby. Seeing the obvious value of sport to young men, Cusack added to his civil service exam school a rigorous sports education program, which included rugby, cricket, 
rowing, and weight throwing. This gave heretofore unimaginable access to sport to those of the less privileged classes. Certainly aware of the snowballing trend of standardizing sports in the UK, the Empire, the US, and Europe, Michael Cusack began thinking of ways to again make viable the traditional Irish sports, particularly hurling. It didn't take long. He was a founding member of the Dublin Hurling Club, something of a sporting league with a mission statement of, quote, for the purpose of taking steps to reestablish the national game of hurling, unquote. The Dublin Association scheduled games beginning in early 1882. The Freeman's Journal of January 12th of that year noted under fixtures, perhaps the first time such a header had been used for hurling in a newspaper, as Clark's 12 versus Worthington's 12 on the upcoming weekend, followed by County Dublin versus United Bank. In these two match listings alone, can we see the evolution of sport and society? We have two teams with apparently wealthy patrons, one side sponsored in the old AAU style of the states, and one of the club-slash-county format that would soon become the dominant form of sports club in Europe. During organized hurling's moribund period, reportage of sporting events had also evolved, though you may agree that, as vital as the prose remained in papers like the Freeman's Journal, something had been lost in hurling writing. Here's the recap of the aforementioned County Dublin v. United Banks match. This first-class match was played on Saturday on the ground of the Leinster Hurley Club. A large concourse of spectators took a lively interest in the match, and many of those who applauded the players were ladies. The county gained three goals to two obtained by the bankers. The goals for the winners were scored by Cordner, Haskins, and Bell, while Seawright, Morgan Clark, Fulton, and Cart also played extremely well. Those who showed best form on the bank side were Whitaker and Gelston, who each gained a score while Stokes and the brothers Fleming were always well on the ball. The play was fast and severe throughout, but the state of the ground most unpleasant. It is probable that a team will cross the water later on in the season to try conclusions with the English hockey players. After just a year of the weekly matches at Phoenix Park, the imponymously named Cusack's Academy Hurling Club, for those of high school age, and the Metropolitan Hurling Club, for adults, were established. In 1884... Cusack realized that, despite the incredible revival of hurling in the country, one old problem remained. Every area's rules were different. When Cusack's Metropolitans played a high-profile match in Galway, play was twice stopped due to major rule disputes. Later that year, an essay by Cusack that would change Irish sport forever ran in national newspapers. A word about Irish athletics. No movement having for its object the social and political advancement of a nation from the tyranny of imported and enforced customs and manners can be regarded as perfect if it has not made adequate provision for the preservation and cultivation of the national pastimes of the people. Voluntary neglect of such pastimes is a sure sign of national decay. The strength and energy of a race are largely dependent on the national pastimes for the development of a spirit of courage and endurance. A warlike race is ever fond of games requiring skill, strength, and staying power. But when a race is declining in martial spirit, no matter from what cause, the national games are neglected at first and then forgotten. A so-called revival of athletics was inaugurated in Ireland. The new movement did not originate with those who had ever had any sympathy with Ireland or for the Irish people. Accordingly, labourers, tradesmen, artists, and even policemen and soldiers were excluded from a few competitions 
which constituted the lame and halting program of the promoters. Two years ago, every man who did not make his living either wholly or partly by athletics was allowed to take part. But with this concession came a law which is as intolerable as its existence in Ireland is degrading. The law is this, that all athletic meetings should be held under the rules of the Amateur Athletic Association of England, and that any person competing at any meeting not held under those rules should be ineligible to compete anywhere. The management of nearly all the meetings held in Ireland since has been entrusted to persons hostile to all the dearest aspirations of the Irish people. Every effort has been made to make the meetings look as English as possible, foot races, betting and flagrant cheating being the most prominent features. Swarms of pot-hunting mashers sprang into existence. They formed harrier clubs for the purposes of training all through the winter after the fashion of English professional athletes that they might be able to win and pawn the prizes offered for competition in the summer. We tell the Irish people to take the management of their games into their own hands, encouraging and promoting in every way every form of athletics which is purely Irish, and to remove at one sweep everything foreign and iniquitous in the present system. The vast majority of athletes in Ireland are nationalists. These gentlemen should take the matter in hand at once and draft laws for the guidance of the promoters of meetings in Ireland next year. The people pay for the expense of the meetings and the representatives of the people should have the controlling power. It is only by such an arrangement that Irish athletics can be revived and that the incomparable strength and physique of our race will be preserved. United Ireland, 11 October 1884 Things moved at nearly the speed of Hurling's revivification. Cusack's article was supported in print a week later by a letter from Maurice Davin of Tipperary's three Davin brothers. Davin is also in the running for Irish sports GOAT as he broke slash set records in four track and field sports between 1871 and 1877. 20 days later, Davin was named president of the newly formed Gaelic Athletic Association for the Preservation and Cultivation of National Pastimes. The various regional versions of hurling were combined under one standardized set of rules which would hereafter change when needed deliberately over time. The sport of hurling was born 3,000 years after the Celts had started playing. So here we are, 40 minutes into this episode of Truly the Goats. We've gone through 97% of the history of hurling. A century past the game's heyday, yet only now in the story have we entered the age of statistics and sports reporting. MVP awards and all-star teams, championship tournaments and derby matches, nationwide broadcast transmission, and talk of the greatest of all time. 97% of the way through the story of hurling, and I've yet to even address this podcast's central theme of goatdom. I'll be back talking more with Emmett Ryan about some hurling slash Gaelic football stars on the next episode of Truly the Goats. But what of hurling? Michael Cusack must certainly be in the running for Ireland's goat sporting figure as well as his compadre, Maurice David. But in this sport, it's all on the organizational side. From my viewpoint, from the ditch, the excellently named Christy Ring appears to be the consensus choice for greatest hurler of the 20th century, at least. Wrote Sean Moran, the Irish Times in October 1999, in a game as mythologized as hurling, Christy Ring's universally recognized preeminence is remarkable. Yet, he possessed everything from talent 
and ferocious application to longevity and a string of records, including eight All-Ireland medals. Physically resilient and resourceful, he played senior inter-county between 1939 and 1963. Sure, playing 24 years at the top level of any sport definitely puts an athlete in good discussion. But with so much of the game mythologized, what to do about Tommy or the great Dick Doyle upon whom hopes were once pinned? or the literally thousands of others, some of whom might have had the skills to play today. To the amateur historian, the importance of hurling feels based not in individual greats, but of necessity in the telling of mythological yarn, of the party and the braggadocio. And for a millennium, the sport has acted as such a symbol of culture that, well, the game is the thing. So all things considered, for the greatest ever in hurling, Trin the Goats, is going with a guy named Cucullin. Cullen went back to the city to prepare and make ready meat and drink in readiness for the king. Crahur sat in Emmon till it was time to set out for the feast till came the close of the day. The king put his fine light travelling apparel about him and went with fifty chariot chiefs of those who were the noblest and most illustrious of the heroes and betook him to the boys before starting to bid them farewell. It was always his custom to visit and revisit them when going and coming to seek his blessing of the boys. Krahur came on to the fair green, and he saw a thing that astounded him. Trice fifty boys at one end of the green, and a single boy at the other, and a single boy won the victory at the goal and at hurling from the Trice fifty boys. But that's not even the bit for which he's most known. So he just took however long it was for everybody to be convinced, yeah, Kukulin totally beat us as a team, he's amazing. <laughs> but he's late to the party, and all he's got is his hurley, uh, and his slitter, which is what the ball is called. And the problem was, Cullen just assumed, well, Cullen isn't coming, so I better leave the guard dog out in case, you know, any neighbouring tribe comes along to try and raid this party and kill a bunch of people. So the dog's outside. Cullen has no idea. He's just rocking up late to this party. And <laughs> dog comes for him, and Cullen's got, like, you know, the only weapons he has are, you know, the slitter, the ball, and the stick. So he whacks the ball as hard as he can, as fast as he can at the dog, hits it in the temple, dog falls stone dead. And, you know, so... You know, Cullen comes out and he's like, well, it's great you're alive, but damn, my dog's dead, yo. And like, this is a really good dog. I can't make house safe forever. And Cullen goes, I got this. I will be your hound until such time as you, you don't need me. And so that's how he became Coo Cullen, the hound of Cullen. Uh, he's sort of mythologically sort of the biggest mention towards his hurling comfortably. So as though single-handedly beating a team of 150 and metamorphosing into a member of another species weren't enough. Consider this. In anticipation of the 2005 Senior All-Ireland Championship match, Guinness Brewing Company launched its The Stuff of Legend ad campaign. This depicted for print media scenes from the Kukulin myths, instantly recognizable to anyone brought up in the culture. So, what other athlete is or will be considered marketable 3,000 years after his or her prime? This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode, journalist and sports writer Emmett Ryan. Additional voice work for this episode was by Fergal Casey. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street 
greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes Funeral Battle and I've Not Fear by Damiano Baldoni, Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog, Streets of Santivo, Guardians, and Land of a Folk Divided by Mid-Air Machine, and Orbiting the Hurley, a DJ Dream Joker remix of Orbiting the Earth by UltraCat. All tracks are available through Fair Use Agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying, never quit the spud and always keep perspective. sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the sports history network and we're able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets i started the sports history network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.